Around the world, it's time for Earth's favorite shout-out segment. This was a thing shouts out, a.k.a. thought so, a.k.a. thank you from Podcast Man. That's right, this was a thing is introducing a new segment. A segment where you might be able to hear your name or someone else's name, but we will say a name of one of our many supporters. A way to say thank you from us to you. All right, let's get turning. Oh, a ball has been chosen. Let's just wait for it to get to the bottom here. And... Okay. And here it is. Cut, cut. Can we get a drum roll, please? Okay. This week's featured listener is... Mark Gonzalez. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. All right, Mark, here's your shout-out. Mark Gonzalez! Okay, there you go, Mark. We'll be doing one of these segments at least once an episode, so if you want to get your name on one of those little ping-pong balls, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or join our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Now... Back to some retro podcasting. Buckwheat, Alfalfa, Spanky, Stymie, and Darla. You may know them as the Little Rascals, but back when the films were being made, they were known as Our Gang. But however you knew them, they made you laugh. And who doesn't love to laugh at Depression-era kids? Well, laugh with Depression-era kids. Doing the stuff Depression-era kids did. You know, survive? And have fun doing it. Through the decades, the Little Rascals have entertained countless people all over the world. Generations share with the next generation, and the next generation, and so on. But what if I told you there was a curse? An Our Gang Curse. Could be a myth, could be real, but when you hear how some of these kids ended up, you might start believing in witchcraft. We talk about the history and possible witchery of Hal Roach's Rascals, nay, our gang, nay, the Little Rascals. This week on This Was a Thing. Charleston and Gloria Swanson Fatty Arbuckle's time spent in court The suffragists, the flapper girls and dance marathons And sitting on a flagpole just for sport This was a thing That was a thing The cotton club where Ellington would swing Hey, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the retro podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Good read. Okay. Thank you. Today, we're talking about 
a little film series that actually started 101 years ago, Our Gang, which is now more widely known as The Little Rascals. This is a this was a thing because in the early days of motion pictures, one producer had a wild idea. Let's make films of the quote kid and pets variety, Uh-oh. which was a genre back then. Uh, but what if, now listen to me, what if we had the kids act like kids? Yeah. Just be themselves. Yeah. Well, and in doing so and making that decision, Hal Roach started a series that's actually still pretty fairly popular to this day. The thing that made me want to research this is there's a thing called the Little Rascals Curse. What? Yeah. Numerous stars from the franchise, uh, which ran from 1922 to 1944, uh, either died young or passed away in a mysterious, eerie manner, uh, or, you know, bad stuff happened. Now, I couldn't find proof of this anywhere, and this is pure conjecture, mind you, uh, but I bet if there was a curse, it was probably put on them by that one Keystone cop that practiced black magic. (laughs) Now, I can see your hand up now. I know that you and some listeners... Uh, maybe saying to themselves, Little Rascals? Wait, the 1994 family comedy with a 21% Rotten Tomato Tomato Meter score? The Little Rascals movie that served as a perfect launching vehicle for a young Bug Hall serving up his best alfalfa? Who? Bug Hall! He played alfalfa! Penelope's Fierce directed cinema feature with wacky cameos by celebrities from Whoopi Goldberg to Mel Brooks, from Daryl Hannah to, as of now, four-time indicted former president Don Trump? I'm not talking about that movie. No, see, I'm talking about the short film series that film is based on. The short film series that changed his name to The Little Rascals, you know, started as Hal Roach's Rascals, but then ended up being called Our Gang. Now, Hal liked adventure, uh, and in his youth, he actually wound up in Alaska, and, you know, wanting a real sense of adventure... He left Alaska, and at the age of 20, he decided to move to Hollywood. And you want a real adventure? Move to Hollywood in 1912 to work as a film extra. That's adventure. You know, after a few years of rubbing elbows uh, in the background, as you do, he he got an inheritance. And in 1915, he started to produce films uh, with the money he got. And uh, he produced them with a friend of his that he met while doing extra work, a fellow named Harry Lloyd. Oh. A guy who would end up being... now, one of the most recognizable faces in the silent film era, you know, he wore the straw, bar- uh, straw barbershop hat. The most famous scene you'd know is he's hanging off a big clock. Now, Rob, would you go ahead and, and explain to listeners what silent film is? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm only teasing. Silent films were uh, were actually movies that didn't have any dialogue. All the sound, uh, all the all the people's voices just sounded like a piano. <laughs> Hal was using uh, downtown L.A. for a studio, which nowadays that would be the fucking worst thing in the world. But I'm sure back then, you know, it wasn't as crazy. Although they still had the one-way streets that are annoying. When he couldn't uh, expand, you know, because of the daggum zoning laws that, you know, those, those politicians that put in, he decided he needed to move. And he went to Culver City and he bought some land from the man that the town is actually named after. Harry City. So Harry Culver, sorry. Harry Culver. This land uh, would end up being Hal Roach Studios. They would go on to produce some of the biggest films of the era, films that starred the likes of his buddy, you know, uh, uh, Harry Lloyd, Will Rogers, one of Rob's favorite, Zazu Pitts, <laughs> Charlie Chase, Laurel and Hardy, and of course, Our Gang. So the idea of Our Gang came to Hal after he held an audition 
for a child actress in 1921. It's one of those things he just felt like the little girl was just far too rehearsed and made up, and it just didn't... She didn't seem like a kid. It was very, probably, stage mother preparing her for everything. After the girl left, all Hal could do was just kind of stare out the window blankly, as most creatives do, uh... Most of the time, 15 minutes goes by and he realized he'd just been staring the whole time. But the thing that caught his attention that he was staring at was a fight that he saw happening across the street. So what was happening was it was a fight between some kids, just a a kid fight. Now, all the kids took sticks from the lumberyard to play with. But of course, the smallest boy got the biggest stick and the other boys didn't like that. And they wanted him to get the, the biggest stick to the biggest boy. You know, it's the high-stakes shit that makes, you know, drama, drama. Now, 80 years later, these sticks would evolve into Pokemon cards. But, you know, still, to this day, it happens. Now, after realizing uh, that he was just staring at a group of boys fighting for 15 minutes, he has the idea for a, a short film series about kids, get this, acting like kids, bickering like kids, running a free and fair election like kids, you know, just being kids. This wasn't the first idea Hal had for a series of shorts revolving around a kid. The first one uh, was called Sunshine Sammy, played by Ernie Morrison. Now, the series would be uh, about the young black child's adventures. Oh, my God. Uh, Now, they filmed the first film. uh, So, uh, remember, listeners, this this was the late teens, early 20s. So, this is not me. There's going to be a lot of examples of uh, me reading verbatim or what it's called. The film was called The Pickaninny. Yeah. Well, this would-be film series quickly became a could-be film series as it was canceled after only one film. Uh, theater owners uh, apparently did not like... Uh, it, no, it wasn't the title that was offensive. It was the fact that it was a film about a black boy. They didn't want to show a, fuck a, a kid about a black boy. Sunshine Sam was under contract with Hal Studio, so he moved over to the new Kid and Pet series. Ernie Morrison was the first member of the gang. He was the first black child in cinema history. And he was known as Sunshine Sammy even before he joined the gang. My father didn't take me. Uh, He took the neighbor's child. Now the baby didn't have to do anything but not cry. So they couldn't get anything out of the kid because as soon as he hear that camera whirring, he'd look up and ah, he used to raise the story. So somebody said, look, Joseph, say, don't you have a kid? He said, yeah. He said, well, bring your guy out here. He can't be no worse than this one. So they took me. I was just the opposite. Inquisitive, the big eyes, wanting to know what was going on, looking up, smiling, and they got what they wanted. So one of the guys on said, Joe said, we ought to call him Sunshine. He said he hadn't bothered about crying and even thought about crying. You ought to call him Sunshine. My father got home that night and he said, Sunshine. And he took Sunshine and he put Sammy behind it and got his copyright. So the initial kids that were cast were recommended by studio employees because obviously they know talent. The initial pets that were cast, well, they would end up being the first animals to form an entertainment union. And I'm talking, these were... High-profile pets we're talking about here, okay? Look, I may have made that common in jest about pets forming an entertainment union, uh, but what I won't joke about is that Hal Roach Studios, for their new Kid and Pet series, was somehow able to book at this time in film in silent film era, which is huge, Dinah the Mule. Yeah, what 
in ass. You need to stop. Now, here's a quick breakdown of the rest of the cast uh, from the first film. Now, they had, they each had a descriptor for an identification. I want you to hear this. This early group also included Jackie Davis, later the first tough kid. Little Joe Cobb, the original fat kid. Freckle-faced Mickey Daniels, who would emerge as leader. And Jackie Condon with the tousled hair. So after firing the first director and throwing out his footage, Hal settled on a new director for this first film of the Kid and Pet series, a man who was familiar with the heat of a production, uh, former fireman Robert F. McGowan, never directed a film. Well, this was a new director behind the hose, camera, sorry. The first entry in Hal Roach's Rascals, titled Our Gang, was completed, released, and it was a hit. Now, the press said they wanted more of these, quote, Our Gang comedies. Well, you know, once the press says it, it sticks. Our Gang became the second and subsequently more popular title. Title cards read, Our Gang comedies, Hal Roach presents his rascals in movie title. The series would bo go by both Our Gang and Hal Roach's Rascals until 1932, and they just settled on Our Gang. The official first wide release was actually the fourth short that was filmed, you know, because they don't like to keep up with numbers. I guess technically official, Our Gang comedies, Hal Roach presents his r Rascals in One Terrible Day. The day that that was released was September 10th, 1922, so just over 101 years ago. Now, it's distributed by uh, Pathé Exchange, which at the time was a major production and distribution company during the silent era. Uh, one Terrible Day was, quote, one immediate hit. That's my quote. Uh, now, uh, one of the things that audience liked the most was the, the thing that gave Hal the idea in the first place. Just kids being kids. Between September 10th, 1922 and April 29th, 1944, there were 220 of these shorts produced, plus one feature-length film, General Spanky, Working title uh, was Patton. They feature uh, over <laughs> over 41 child actors as the regular cast members. Uh, now, because of the sheer amount of stories that could be told, I'm going to stick with the idea of the curse, which means I won't go into detail about the film plots. I'm going to just tell you about the things that were odd to me, things that just didn't seem right to the old brain. And there's a lot of things that don't seem right, so get ready. Now, whether it was back then or now, if it seems odd, if it seems like it's something that might have been born of a curse that could have or could not have been placed on by the warlock keystone cop then i'll probably mention it now i'll also give you an idea of how the lives of some of the most well-known rascals or as the cast referred to themselves gang members what their life was like during the time of filming the shorts or after it was all over you know uh, their life. Uh, and now the likes of Buckwheat, Spanky, Darla, Stymie, Alfalfa, and of course the rascal who we all remember from appearing in the most shorts, 105 of the 220, Farina. Dennis Farina? No, not Dennis Farina. This Farina was only one years old when the shorts began. Now, audiences loved the, the cute little black girl immediately. Now, Farina was chosen due to it being an ambiguous-sounding name because, you see, the little baby girl playing Farina was born Alan Clayton Hoskins. Is this, like, a, a transgender thing? No, 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 no. He was he was born a boy, and that didn't matter to the producers at Hal Roach Studios. They needed a baby girl, and Alan Clayton Hoskins was that baby. Now, as Farina got older, he started to play the role as a boy. But let's be honest. Some films he portrayed both genders. Now, why not? 
What a trailblazer. Farina's popularity continued uh, to grow and grow. Stories about Roach's rascals were being written in papers worldwide. Uh, Even the newspaper in Lima, Ohio, wrote a story about Farina because it reported that Farina was ready to quit playing a girl in the series. But of course you may not know Alan Clayton Hoskins is the, quote, sure enough name of little Farina who is having a birthday party out in Hollywood today. Now he's getting pretty big and wants to wear trousers and be a boy on the screen as well as off of it. Now his sister, uh, his sister Janie or Janny joined the cast and would be known as Mango in the series. These are, you're making these names up. No. By the time Farina was six years old, he was making more money than most working adults were. By appearing in this film series. Good for Rena. So Fern Carter, she was the woman who was the official teacher of Hal Roach Studios for 23 years. I'm sure she got to deal with a bunch of wonderful, wonderful child actors of the day. Over 300 students she had. She said Farina was the brightest student she ever had. He would end up becoming the most popular character in the film series. The, he wasn't the first black child actor or first black child in our gang. Uh, it could be argued that he became the first child black star the black child star in fact it was actually sunshine sammy aka ernie morrison who's considered hollywood's first major black film star not just child like i guess you know he would be a child star but like he was the first black actor that became a star even before adults because i think people i guess racist assholes were like well it's a kid at least yeah we can like that but back to our favorite serial and cast member Gender ambiguous Farina. Now, uh, Farina had already established was already established in silent films, but uh, he made the transition to talkies with our gang, uh, maintaining his popularity with the major change. In fact, the whole cast remained popular with the talking. Sadly for Farina, time got the best of him, like most child actors. And in 1931, he had to officially retire from the series. Uh, by then, he was a seasoned veteran of the film series, being there since its inception. He was. The ripe age of 11 years old at the time he walked away. He got a pubic hair. He's washed up. You know what I say? As soon as they got a wet dream, washed up. Once he had to get that wooden knee, well, bye-bye, Farina. Now, this is just putting perspective. January 1931, Farina is a Hollywood film star attending lavish parties. Apparently, Hal Roach, uh, gave, he said, you can pick any Christmas present you want. So he got any, you know, so he picked that $350 a week. Six months later... July 1931, unemployed. What a failure. 11-year-old, unemployed. Farina would continue to pursue his career in entertainment. He'd appear in some films there, here and there. Nothing like, nothing of note. He would make the newspaper again, though. After booking a role in his first full-length film, You Set a Mouthful, it was reported that he'd cut off his braids for the film role and he placed them in the family Bible. How about that, huh? It's beautiful. Now, I won't get into much detail, this much detail with all the other rascals, but I feel like Farina is important to our gang lore because not only was he the first major star of the series, he was also black and loved by audiences from young and old, which obviously was not normal for audiences to love a black child back then. Now, Farina's story has a chapter in it that many rascals would also have in their books that are not or have been written, not the same exact chapter, but it has the same theme. Now, that theme, World War II, that's right. These kids who were 
acting at a young age were perfect to get drafted. Perfect age. Now, uh, Alan Hoskins actually volunteered to serve in the Army in 1940, uh, in August, a month before the first draft registration took place. Next year, he was Private Hoskins, stationed in Monterey, California. He was still getting used to his new life, uh, no longer wearing girls' clothing. He was now in olive drab wool in winter and khaki cotton fabric for summer. Now, uh, when the war ended in 1945, Sergeant Alan Hoskins, who was at 25 at that point, would try to break into the business again after some auditions, including ones outside of Roach Studios. He decided that it was time to retire from the stage name Farina. And like that, Farina would go back to just being associated as a hot breakfast cereal. He moved up to San Francisco Bay Area in 1952, officially leaving the town of Tinsel. He met his future wife, Franzi, up there. Worked odd jobs, make ends meet. In 1953, along with some of the other rascals on reunion type of episode of You Asked For It, when asked why he left acting, he said, I preferred a job that allowed me to eat regular. On July 26, 1980, Sergeant Alan Hos- Clayton Hoskins, a.k.a. Kfarina, passed away after a battle with cancer. Now, he was 59 years old. He's surrounded by his children and wife, Franzi, who would live until 2010. Alan's sister, Janie Mango, uh, would wind up in North, uh, Northern California and would pass away in 1996. Sadly, Alan Hoskins was initially buried without a gravestone in an unmarked grave in Oakland, and it wasn't until 2000. And with the help of the website, Find a Grave. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they would then have a get a proper headstone. Now, that's the story most of it of the rascal that was one of the first stars of the series could be argued was the first famous black child actor or even got experience life in the gang as both genders uh today farina isn't as well known as the likes of spanky buckwheat of our or alfalfa but he appeared in many more films than them but i wanted to cover his story mostly because he had a lot of sad times in his life. He also have ended up having, compared to others, a somewhat longer life. Yes, 59 isn't that old, but a lot of rascals didn't even make it to almost old part of their lives. And to me, Farina's story is almost as if you were to feed in the lives of a bunch of little rascals into an AI and told the AI to make up a story about because there's just so many different things that happened. It was almost like, wow, this dude had a life. Now, someone who gets brought up over and over and over and mostly in mostly a positive sense isn't a child actor. No, no, it's the man who directed a majority of the films from 1922 to 1933. Remember, former firefighter of Denver, Robert F. McGowan. Now, he left firefighting due to an on-the-job injury that left him with a permanent limp. Now, he seemed to have some kind of a sixth sense with the kids. Sixth sense sense or sixth? Sixth sense. That was said, and I don't really... I feel like if I hear anyone like, you know, they just have a sixth sense with kids. I don't want to I don't want any kids around them. But uh, apparently he did. He worked with the kids to help them get a style that let them essentially just act like kids. Now, uh, McGowan didn't make a fuss over the filmmaking equipment, almost made it seem as if it was just part of everything. The scripts were hardly ever seen by the children. Some weren't even able to read yet. Instead, McGowan uh, would go over the scene that they were about to shoot. You know, okay, this is what's going to happen. Uh, he direct them using a megaphone and encourage them to improvise, much like they do with uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now, this is a little something about Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob? Bring him in. Bob McGowan, our director, we all loved him. And we'd do anything in the world for him. Because when he got ready to do something in a situation, he'd ask us. He said, now, this is what I want. He said, how would you do this? Well... The kids being kids would do it like they saw it. 
which was what he was after. Bob was very, very good with us children. And um, he just had the patience and he could coax things out of you. And uh, he very, very seldom lost his temper. He was one of the greatest uh, directors for kids, you know. And uh, he was nice and he, you know, he loved us, you know what I mean? Tell me about your Uncle Bob. Oh, a sweetheart. Now, this is Bob McGowan we're talking about, the director of the series. I know. It, it, he was sweet, and he was such a nice man to work with. He could be, he could be rough on you, and he'd be cross, but especially with the little girls. Uh -huh. If he said anything that he thought would hurt them, he'd, the next minute he'd have them on his lap telling them that Uncle Bob loved them. And he had me on his lap many times. Oh, I feel so uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. 1927, uh, still in the middle of Farina's run, Hal decided to switch distributors from Path 8 to MGM. Now, it was only two years later that those crazy sounds were going to be coming out of the movie. Sounds that were almost sounding like letters, but those letters were being strung together to form words. And then the words were turning into sentences. Well, sentence fragments. Uh, they were just kids, for God's sake. But, uh, you know, you got you to give them some goddamn leeway. Now, one member that joined the gang around the time of transitioning to talkies. They, they brought in to replace Farina, known for his trademark derby cap, uh, is originally going to be named Hercules. But when uh, Uncle Bob, director Uncle Bob, uh, kept getting frustrated or stymied, if you will, it was decided that the ch character's name would be Stymie. That's right. He got his name because he annoyed the shit out of Uncle Bob. Now, it, this it was around this time that, uh, that Uncle Bob McGowan uh, had to step away from his directing duties. Now, he got a doctor's mandated sabbatical for exhaustion. Now, you, you're curious, what caused the exhaustion? It was apparently the stress of directing child actors all the time, which also means that you get to deal with those wonderful, wonderful stage parents. So it's, you know, it's a real fun photosynthesis it could have had to have been back then. The man who would fill in for Robert McGowan, uh, it would be a fella named Robert A. McGowan. Yeah, same name, but it's it was his nephew. Now, uh, to avoid confusion, they uh, they called the new director Anthony Mack, and uh, he was a Mack in name only, because apparently he acted more like a sack than a Mack. And to clarify, I mean a sack of shit. Anthony Mack was directing at this time. Bob McGowan was on vacation, and uh, of course he had a short fuse, and he wasn't as patient with us children as Bob was. But he told me to quit playing with the pool ball, and of course uh, I did for a few minutes. And then just about in the middle of taking the picture of the chicken, I rolled the ball, and it hit the side and rolled back, scared the chicken, and broke the egg. And of course he lost his temper and said, Jay, you're fired. Now, the fact that all these children would eventually grow up, you know, year after year, is hopefully something that every human on Earth has been to conditioned to know, but especially the producers of short films that revolve around small children. Now, when their contracts were renewed, it was obviously considered newsworthy. There wasn't a lot happening. An article that appeared in the 1937 uh, Abilene, Texas newspaper attempted to explain how this worked. Now, six children are always under contract. And a child is kept until he grows, outgrows the part. There is complete turnover every four years. Farina stayed with it for nine years. He and Joe Cobb, the original fat boy who lasted eight years, are the exception to the four-year rule. 
When it'll be almost time to replace one of the near-adults, I mean rascals, auditions were usually held in the Los Angeles area, but from time to time, nationwide contests were held. Some of the most recognizable rascals came out of these, uh, these seminars. We got Chubby, Stymie, and Buckwheat. Among some of the fresh faces that have been added to the cast were Bobby Hutchins and Jackie Koopa. Now, Jackie would get to keep his name, but after running around the studio so much his first day, Bobby Hutchins started to wheeze. People started to call him Weezer. Now, uh, not the band, Weezer. When it was all said and done, uh, Jackie Cooper uh, would go on to be considered the most successful, quote, our gang member over time. Now, you know, we'll get to Robert Blake, sure. Uh, but all things considered, Jackie Cooper had a, a good long career, was nominated for an Oscar as a child. He's even mentioned in putting on the Ritz. All that success doesn't mean he had it easy as a kid on set. No, no, no. Jackie also had some bad times. My grandmother, I can remember this woman hovering over me like a, like a, some big bird, you know, and so nobody would see, and pinching the inside of my legs and saying, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do this right. And am I not understanding why I was being attacked like this and crying? And then just before she left, she said, no, don't you stop crying, and she gave me a slap and backed out, and then he rolled the cameras, and Bob would say, no, say the dialogue. She said, don't stop crying, but say the dialogue. Poor man, he, he had nothing to do with it, but I had a lot of instances like that with, with my grandmother, which made for a lot of hard feelings between her and me till the day my mother died, and then I didn't have to see her again, and I never did. Yeah. Jackie would leave the series after shortly thereafter to work on bigger and better productions. January 1931, an ad in a trade for Hal Roach Studios, I don't know if it was in the Penny Saver, it requested photos of, quote, cute kids. Well, an Aunt Dottie... We all love an Aunt Dottie. Saw this ad and sent in photos of her two-year-old nephew, George. George, or his, fa- or his family called him, Sonny, had already developed a portfolio at this point. You know, He'd already modeled uh, ki- children's clothing at this point for a department store in Dallas. He already appeared on highway billboards in the Dallas area and appeared in print ads for Wonder Bread. Now, reminder, this George... Sonny, he was only two years old when all this uh, this was happening and that cute kids ad was run. Now, I, I tell you what, Aunt Dottie made the right decision in sending in those photos because it got George Sonny a screen test and she sent photos to a legit production company. So good on her. Well, that two-year-old booked and soon Sonny started going by a new nickname, a nickname that is rumored to have come from his mom giving him warnings not to misbehave during one of the first meetings with Roach. Yes, Sonny would now be known as Spanky. Spanky says that story is hogwash but uh, about his mom spanking him, but uh, he says that an Ellie newspaper reporter gave him the nickname. Spanky quickly became one of the most popular gang members, uh, moving up from Sassy Toddler to essentially the gang's leader in only a matter of few years. This is a clip of Spanky in 1984 for that documentary. Dialogue wasn't really a lot of problem because when you were very young, you didn't have any. And it was mostly visual stuff. And they would just turn the camera on and the director would direct you from beside the camera and attempt to get you to do what he wanted you to do. Um, A lot of times that was also done, like in my early films, uh, in the one film where, which was part of my screen test, where I was trying to hit a bug. The director would simply talk to me, uh, Bob McGowan, and say, hit the bug, Spanky, hit the bug, Spanky. And where I was uh, 
where I made some kind of a response to the bug or Pete the dog or when I laughed or something like that was a reaction simply from what I was doing. By 1934, the man who directed a majority of the films, he officially retired. It wasn't just a sabbatical. Now, brought in to replace Uncle Bob was German-born Gus Mein. I am Uncle Gus now. Why can't they keep any of these fucking directors? Directing kids back then? Come on, Robert. He was brought in because he directed a bunch of the competitor Buster Brown shorts. Um, and unlike Uncle Bob, Gus Mein's uh, did not like improvisation. We will stick to the words as written. Und action. More actors were cycling through as well. Darla and Porky came on board around this time. They'd end up being staples of the crew. Then a big shift was about to hit our gang. A big old cow-licking shift. In 1934, the Switzer family from Paris, Illinois, were on vacation in California to see family. I can only imagine that trip out there. Now, uh, on a sightseeing trip, they decided to go to Hal Roach Studios. Before they left... They decided to go to the studio cafeteria that's open to the public. Now, back in Paris, uh, Illinois, eight-year-old Harold and six-year-old Carl were known for their performances and their musical talent. Paris, Illinois, not France again. Anyways, Harold and Carl got hit with a sense of home because right there in the cafe, they busted out a performance. And timing is everything. It just so happened to be Hal Roach's lunchtime. He saw the whole performance. He was so impressed he signed both brothers to contracts. Now, when it came to getting nicknames, eight-year-old Harold got two. That's right. Deadpan and Slim. Now, six-year-old Carl only got one. But uh, I bet this will make Carl pretty competitive. Just because I have a feeling that Carl will always be trying to get his brother's heights in the series. Sorry, I keep calling Carl. It's Alfalfa. I'm talking about Alfalfa. He would, he would, he would just go on to be bigger than his brother. So yeah, it's it's Alfalfa. Carl Alfalfa. Now the brothers would make their debuts in 1935, and by 1936, the next year, believe it or not, which is 30, 36 comes after 35, Alfalfa was one of the main characters of the series. Now while his older brother, Deadpan Slim, he got moved to the background later, buddy. Now, Spanky and Alfalfa were essentially co-heads. Uh, Spanky had gone to star in the only full-length feature they made, General Spanky. It wasn't the success that Hal Roach uh, was hoping it would be. Uh, behind the scenes, there was a little bit of arguing going on. The arguing that was going on was between the daddies of Spanky and Alfalfa over things like screen time and how their kid was billed. Now, in an interview with E, uh, director George Sidney, who was another one of the directors, uh, recounted Switzer's behavior. He said he would step on the other kid's feet. He would carry big nails in his pocket and stick it in the other kids and hit the kids and things like that. So Alfalfa was a fucking asshole. He was just a a monster, apparently. Now, according to uh, TV historian Kevin S. Butler, uh, his stunts bordered on the sadistic. Quote, before they died, Spanky McFarland and Darla Hood told me of the cruel pranks that Alfalfa played on them, Butler states. For instance, Alfie put sharp fish hooks in Spanky's back pockets and the poor guy had to have stitches. Alfie also placed an open switchblade knife in the pocket and in his pocket and tricked Darla into putting her hand in his pocket on the pretense that he had a ring for her and from a Cracker Jack box. She almost lost her finger. Also in 1935. Stymie would leave the gang after five years in and at the ripe age of 10. Now it's time for them to find a new replacement. Back in 
back to school. Backpack. Lockers. Lockers to hide in. Speaking of school, what's the biggest lesson you ever learned? Hmm. To subscribe to Patreon to help keep this show on the air. I learned that in economics. Ooh, I was sick that day. How do I subscribe? Well, to be one of the cool kids, become one of our Patreon supporters and help keep this show on the air. Head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for This Was a Thing. And set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help continue doing what we're doing. Good to know. Well, I'm going to subscribe, then get a note to get out of P.E. Rob. I have moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Oh. So Billy Thomas was a native of L.A. You mean an Angelino? He was an Angelino. Thank you, Robert. He was an Angelino through and through. And in 1934, uh, they appeared in a in background of three shorts, no lines, just a big gigantic smile by the next year billy had gotten gotten one of those nicknames it wasn't an original nickname any means it all had already been played by two different children at this point it, it didn't matter to billy though that the uh the two had already played the role before him the you know the the, the, the two character the two children were girls there were two girls that played this character before but billy did it didn't matter all that mattered was that billy thomas native angelino would now forever be known as Buckwheat. But Buckwheat was still going to be portrayed as a gal. What? Yeah, Buckwheat at first was still going to be portrayed as a gal. So Billy Thomas, you know, it spelled I-E at the end, so it could pass as a woman, like that uh, like that tennis player, right? Billy Jean King. Yep, that's one. Or or Billy Holiday. Or Billy Crystal. Now, when Stymie, uh, Stymie would leave our gang later that year, Buckwheat slowly started their metamorphosis to boy queet because he was turning into a boy. That's right. When we talked about Farina, they kind of handled Farina in the same way. It's like, ah, well, Farina's a girl until, well, there's stubble. Farina's got stubble now, (laughs) so Farina's a boy. But here's the thing. Boy Buckwheat was still ahead of his time because he had an androgynous style, okay? I don't think we should, don't think we should call him Boy Buckwheat. In 1936, that was changed when uh, he premiered a look that he would keep for the rest of his series, rest of the series. Overalls, striped shirt, oversized shoes, and what, uh, what did his hair look like, Rob? It looked like he had been electrocuted. Yep. Now, you're, you're probably asking yourself, what was it that made them make that change to this new look. And well, for the one full-length Our Gang film, General Spanky, they had a role they wanted Buckwheat to play. And, uh, well, remember, this is the 30s, uh, uh, 1936. Uh, so the role they wanted him to play... Oh, and mind you, uh, General Spanky takes place during the Civil War. Oh, boy. They wanted him to play uh, a five-year-old slave... Uh, asking men on the boat, and then Spanky. Uh, this is the exact quote. You be my master? I've just never been so uncomfortable in my entire life. I will say, I will say, that Leonard Malton got ahead of this, and he wrote in his classic movie guide right up for the film that, uh, quote, Buckwheat's role as slave in search of a master may displease contemporary audiences. You think? You think, Lenny? So, yeah, General Spanky was released in 1936, and it would be the only full-length uh, hour gang film, like I said. By this time, movie theater owners stopped showing two real 
comedies, which are 20 minute comedies like Our Gang and Laurel and Hardy. And instead, they just wanted to show double features, which is two full length films for the price of one, which I mean, come on. Come on. If I'm seeing that deal, I'm there all day. I'm, I'm buying that fucking deal. Laurel and Hardy did switch to making full-length films by 1935. Uh, Hal Roach, though, uh, he thought that it, it may be time to retire the Our Gang series. And that was before the head of his distribution company uh, told him that he should just keep making the shorts. Now, don't forget, this is a distributor, MGM. Now, let's talk about who the head of MGM was, Louis B. Mayer. So when Louis B. Mayer tells you to do something back then, I feel like you're like, yes, sir. He decided to keep making more shorts, but he was going uh, to make a change. He made the shorts even shorter, 10 minutes. So one reel. With the move to one reels, our gang cast stayed pretty much the same from 36 to 39, which is pretty much subsequently the, area, the era that uh, most casual fans are most familiar with like those three years 36 to 39 because that's the ones that people that they played and stuff uh, in, in syndication most so it's spanky alfalfa darla buckwheat and porky so because hal agreed to keep making these shorts he got permission to produce a feature length that would be general spanky like i said it was not a success though uh although it did get one oscar nomination for best sound recording so uh shout out elmer a ragoose jesus christ <laughs> I can't believe this. I just can't believe this. Rise of Double Features, decline of profit margins. Hal couldn't produce Our Gang shorts anymore, uh, but distributor MGM didn't want them to stop. So May 31st, 1938, Hal Roach and MGM reach a deal. He sells the rights to Our Gang unit, the rights to the name and contracts for actors and writers. His studio would end up in their distribution with MGM shortly after, uh, and they moved to United Artists for dist distribution. But... Um, now we're at MGM, our games at MGM. One of the first things MGM did when they took over was replace Spanky. What? Why? Oh, because he left. Yeah. So they were like, okay, what? how do we replace Spanky? So what they did is they replaced him with um, Spanky. So yeah, they just rehired him. They just rehired Spanky. So Spanky's back. It's like he never left. Now, another new hire was a boy from New Jersey, Mickey Gubatosi. Hey, Mickey Gubatosi. But, uh... Mickey's Our Gang character was known for being whiny and obnoxious. It's like my character in real life. Now, the MGM era uh, is, 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 is it's not well regarded amongst uh, rascal fans, uh, 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 gang fans, uh, as, as the Hal Roach era was. Uh, dialogue seemed to just being recited instead of, uh, you know, acted like a child. Yeah, they had Olivier come and work with Buckwheat, I heard. Yeah, yeah. The adults getting into trouble tended to be more the focus than the kids. Uh, MGM got criticized for keeping Spanky, Alfalfa, and Buckwheat in the series through their early teens. I'm a kid. Let's just say the slapstick was not MGM's uh, forefront. Alfalfa leads in 1940. Darla, end of 41. Spanky, less than a year after her. 1942, Mickey Gubatosi would start being called Mickey Blake in the series. Oh no, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> Due to him changing his professional name to Bobby Blake. Oh no. Yeah, he'd eventually became the final lead of our gang. Don't get pizza with this man. I'm warning you, do not get pizza with this <laughs> man. Uh, now, even though most of the leads had left the series at this point, probably, you know, old enough to go and start families of their own, MGM luckily still had buckwheat. Uh, he would stay with the series until the very end. Uh, and that end came on April 29th, 1944, with the release of Dancing Romeo. That was the last film they made? Yeah, Dancing Romeo. By now, the Hour Gang title was dropped and rebranded as MGM Miniature. 
Not a fan of this, kids. Not no. a fan of this. So in total, 52 Our Gang uh, shorts were produced by MGM. Our Gang series officially wrapped. It was now time for the cast to live those long and healthy lives, living off the profits that they would make from their shorts being re-shown on television later on. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, when Hal Roach sold the rights to MGM, he retained the rights to the Our Gang trademark. As long as he didn't produce any more comedies in the vein of Our Gang. Well, knowing that, in the late 40s, Hal decided to create a new film property, but this time in the mold of Our Gang. So he just decided to do what he wasn't supposed to do. He got permission to move forward with a new film, but forfeited its right to buy, his right to buy back the Our Gang name. He was able to do another kids movie in the vein of Our Gang, but okay. he wasn't allowed then to use the Our Gang name. He made two Cinecolor features, Curly and Who Killed Doc Robin. Neither did well. In 1949, MGM and Hal Roach did business yet again. This time, MGM sold Hal back the catalog of Our Gang. Now, all the shorts produced between 1927 and 1939, MGM kept the Our Gang name and the 52 shorts that MGM produced, as well as General Spanky. But Hal Roach got all the films back that he produced before selling to MGM. Okay. Now, some of the terms of the deal were that Hal had to cut out the MGM Lion logo, and in any instance, you'd see Metro Golden Mayor. Lowe's Incorporated or Our Gang before they were to be redistributed. And Lowe's was the... Movie theaters, yeah. Yeah. Hal decided to go back where it all began to get a new title because he couldn't use Our Gang anymore. Hal Roach's Rascals would become the Little Rascals, the the term that we all know them as today. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so it was because of him getting the rights back, he called it the Little Rascals. Now, Hal repackaged 79 of the 80 shorts with sound, and then it was time to distribute those Little Rascals. And boy, Hal made some money on this distribution. Uh, shorts started to be shown in theaters again, now known as the Little Rascals, in 1950. Started to be syndicated on TV in 1954. Being on television only made their popularity grow and grow. You'd even be able to have Little Rascals thing to pair with the shorts, toys, comics, all the kind of things Little Rascals licensed stuff was being made. I'm sure that I would have had it if I was a child in the 50s. By this point, MGM was uh, sitting and watching Hal make all this money. Uh, so in 1957, they decided that they would start to distribute the 52 MGM Our Gang shorts. Now, uh, offers started to be made in 1958. It was then that the Little Rascals and Our Gang started to compete with themselves for viewers. So Hal Roach's were the Little Rascals being distributed, and then MGM was distributing their 52 shorts as Our Gang still. Now, all these showings made the kids who were now adults somewhat celebrities again, but that didn't mean much because by all accounts, pretty much, not one cast member ever saw one cent from the thousands of re-airings ever put on television. Hal Roach and MGM, oh, they, they made a lot of money, but they never it never trickled down to the cast members, if you will. That, that is a problem. So I'm going to get into, the, into one of the rascals that we all know, one of the most popular ones, and uh, he kind of had... He didn't have the best life after. When Carl Alfalfa Switzer left our gang, he was 12 years old. Now he was the asshole, right? Yeah, yeah. He was the one who put like fish hooks and fucking, yeah. and like almost had Darla cut her finger off. He was a huge star, like a huge star. And he was just a child. 
So America didn't know it was going to hit him. It was, this kid was ready to go. Now, what did hit them was Carl Switzer not being able to find work. He did find some random roles. He was Mary's date in It's a Wonderful Life. So every Christmas we get to see him. But did, did the audience go, oh, that's alfalfa? Yeah, that's exactly what kind of what it was. He didn't do well on television either. Around, you know, television was up and coming. So you think you get something, make ends meet. He trained and bred hunting dogs and also led hunting expeditions. Now, he met a gal in 1954, married her three months later. I'm looking at a picture of him when he got older. He did not look like a happy person. No, he and he turned into, he just, he looks like alfalfa still. Yeah, but like an, a bitter, angry alfalfa. No, yeah. So he married Diantha, Diantha Switzer, uh, but she was the heiress of a grain elevator empire, which apparently is a thing. Now, by 1956, they were living on a farm given to him by his wife's parents in pretty prairie, Kansas. Now, they had a son that same year whose godparents would happen to be Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Now, uh, George Spanky McFarland happened to be touring through through town in 1957 and saw his old co-worker. Uh, he talked about it in 1957. So this is a quote from Spanky talking about seeing uh, Alfalfa. The last time I saw Carl was 1957. It was a tough time for me and him. I was starting a tour of theme parks and county fairs in the Midwest. Carl married this, this girl whose father owned a pretty good-sized farm near Wichita. When I came through town, he heard about it and called. He told me he was helping to run the farm, but he finally had to put a radio on the tractor where, uh, while he was out there plowing. Knowing Carl, I knew it wasn't going to last. He may have come from Paris, Illinois, but he wasn't a farmer. We hadn't seen each other since uh, we left the gang, so we had lunch, we talked about all the things you'd expect, and then I never saw him again. He looked pretty much the same. He was just Carl Switzer, kind of cocky, a little antsy, and I thought to myself, he hadn't changed that much. He still talked big, he just grew up. He was still a bastard. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say, but uh, Darla was around, and I don't like using that language in this company. <laughs> now, trying to make some money, Carl agreed to train a hunting dog for a friend of his. Moses Samuel Bud Slitz. Bud Slitz. Now, uh, they were longtime friends and met while working uh, with Roy Rogers on various productions. So uh, in the middle of training the dog one day, it just ran off uh, chasing after a bear, as they do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though they were friends, Bud did not feel sorry for Alfalfa. He told him that he wanted the dog back or the value of the dog in cash. Money, Carl did not have. Uh, no, he put out ads in papers. He put... He he put an ad in the penny saver, uh, and the dog was returned to the bar where Carl was working for a, re for a reward. He got $35 and $15 worth of drinks, so today that that $50 would be over $450. So that's a pretty good, pretty good uh, return. Okay. Well, Carl had the dog back, but it wasn't his dog. It was a friend's dog, and he was out $50, so that didn't make him happy. So in a heated conversation with a different friend that, that Bud should reimburse Carl because it was Bud's dog. Well, Carl and his friend go to Bud's house, and they were ready to go to the door and demand that money. From that point on, there are different varying accounts of what happened. Oh, no. Now, what's agreed upon is that Bud was struck over the left side of his head with a glass clock. Jesus. Bud went, then went into his bedroom to get his thirty-eight caliber pistol. Carl tried to wrestle the gun from him. This made the gun discharge, and the bullet almost hit Bud's 14-year-old stepson. So this is Bud's account. Claimed self-defense. He said Carl and his friend showed up to the house yelling, let me in or I'll kick the door in the door, which I, I, I'm hoping that Carl's friend was bigger because I can't imagine him kicking a door in. Then there was a struggle. He didn't know uh, which of the two hit him with the clock. After the gun discharged, Bud said that Carl threatened him with a knife saying, I'm going to kill you. Bud shot Car Carl in the groin. 
Now, the gunshot caused massive damage in his artery, which caused internal bleeding. Carl was dead by the time he arrived at the hospital, and he was only 31 years old. My God almighty. So Carl Alfalfa Switzer died at the age of 31 years old. Now, Tom Corrigan's uh, account differed significantly. Uh, Tom Corrigan was the stepson of Bud. He told investigators that Stitch shot Switzer as he and his friend were leaving. After the gun's accidental discharge uh, that almost hit Corrigan, Switzer turned to Alfalfa's other friend and said they needed to leave. The two were headed to the door when Stitz then fired the fatal shot. Switzer never drew a knife, as Stitz claimed uh, he had. Bud was called to testify at the coroner's inquest, and uh, he testified in his own favor. Testimony was taken to be truthful despite physical evidence that contradicted his account and his past perjury conviction, so that's helpful. Now, years later, Corrigan stood by what he told officers that had had happened that night and said his stepfather uh, did not have to kill Switzer. Mm. So the stepson said that his stepfather didn't have to kill him. Okay. So the shooting was ruled self-defense, although the hunting knife uh, that Carl was said to have had, in fact, just a pen knife, but the incident was ruled justifiable homicide. Now, in 1963, Hal Roach Studios being run by Hal Jr., which was his uh, Hal Roach's son, I think, now uh, filed for bankruptcy. The uh, television rights for the Rascals were up for grabs, and uh, they got purchased by an up-and-coming syndication agent named Charles King. Of King World? Now, he put the shows back on the TV, and their success led to him forming the company King's World. Exactly. King's World Productions. Now, King's World is pref- uh, responsible for the revival of Jeopardy! with Alex Trebek, and also for signing a Chicago-based talk show to national syndication deal. Do you know that show, Robert? It would be the Oprah Winfrey Show. Oprah Winfrey Shows. So this dude, yeah, I, I, this Charles King, I think, had a pretty decent career when it came to money. Now, in 1971, after years of complaints, King's World made big edits to Little Rascal TV prints. So there was, a, there was, as they say nowadays, outdated racial humor. Uh-huh. So most of them had two to four minutes cut. Leaving 30 seconds. But some of them had almost half of the material removed. It ended up being a lot of establishing shots. Yeah, and eight shorts just got pulled all together. Now, I was gonna I was gonna start this section about how nowadays like you have fact checkers for everything. Everything the and it's not even just the professional fact checkers, but uh then every day there just seems to be like a new story that you hear like, well, and no one knows how this slipped through the fact checkers. Yes. You know, so it does, it's a moot point. But regardless, fact checking back in the day was a lot harder to do than it is now. Therefore, it was much easier to get away with stuff. Now, remember, all these actors were kids. Much of the public didn't know what they looked like as adults. They didn't have the opportunities child actors have nowadays to stay relevant on social media, you know, 30 years after the show's canceled. <laughs> so uh, many of the kids cycling through the series, there was bound to be plenty of imposters in adulthoods. Now, some got further than others, like really like too far. Uh, one of the first to do so was Jack Bothwell. Now, Jack said that he portray- portrayed Freckles in the series. Now, if you remember, he was the one who had the hook for a hand. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now, uh, you would remember Freckles. Uh, you would remember Freckles with the hook. I'm sure of it. Now, Jack Bothwell, he had some nerves. Freckles was just made up. Freckles wasn't even a real character. But luckily, Jack was able to play this lie all the way to the show to tell the truth. Oh no! In 1957. <laughs> What is your name, please? My name is Jack Bothwell. What is your name, please? My name is Jack Bothwell. 
What is your name, please? My name is Jack Bothwell. All right, panel, may I ask you to follow along with your copies as I read you this affidavit. I, Jack Bothwell, am the maitre d' in a restaurant in New Jersey. Thirty years ago, I won a prize in a baby parade in Atlantic City. A scout for the Hal Roach Motion Picture Studio saw me, and over the next few years, I played in nine of the famous Our Gang comedies. You may remember me as Freckles. Signed, Jack Bothwell. Of course, there's one imposter that really stands out from the rest. This is one that Rob even brought up to me before I started doing research for this. The year 1990, uh, a man described as amicable, well-liked grocery bagger by the New York Times, Bill English of Arizona, convinced producers of ABC's uh, 2020 that he was, in fact, the original Buckwheat. Now, I'll tell you someone who did fact-check. That would be Mr. George Spanky McFarlane. He informed ABC that the man who actually played Buckwheat, Billy Thomas, passed away a decade earlier of a heart attack at the age of 49. Billy Thomas Jr., his son, also was not fond of the segment. Now, after getting out of the Army, Billy Thomas Sr. had no interest in getting back into acting, saying that, Even the big stars have to chase around an audition. Seemed like a rat race to me with no security. Mm, mm. He was still a fan of the film industry itself, though, and would go on to have a successful career as a film lab technician for Technicolor. Uh, But like Spanky said, uh, Billy Thomas passed. So who in the hell was Bill English of Tempe? A fucking liar. Well, Spanky got to confront fake buckwheat live on air oh i love this i love this on the tabloid news show a current affair with us now is george mcfarland who played spanky and also joining us mr bill english who claims that he is buckwheat george what was your reaction when you saw bill english say he was buckwheat on television well my my first reaction was uh uh what (laughs) uh maybe something like that Bill English would keep up this claim. The producer that booked him would leave 2020, and what ABC said was, uh, said the resignation was a, quote, mutual decision. Now, that producer said that the idea for the segment came from a viewer letter who said that Bill English, a grocery bagger in Tempe, Arizona, had been telling people for 30 years that he used to be buckwheat. I was telling you how they, they didn't make anything in residuals. Now, yes. the only money they made were their weekly salaries during the time in the gang, uh, ranging from $40 a week for newcomers to 200 or more weekly for stars like Farina, Spanky, and Alfalfa. I think Farina, I think I said it was three fifty was his last contract at wow. $1.500 a week uh, 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 an article said back in the day. Now this is from a grunge article titled Tragic Details About the Little Rascals and it's by William J. Wright. George Spanky McFarlane worked tirelessly on behalf of himself and the cast to secure payment for the use of their images to no avail. Despite his frustration, McFarlane took a philosophical stance on the lack of residuals. Quote, I have no regrets. Even though I was a job, we had a pretty good time making those comedies. Unquote. He told the authors of the 1977 book Our Gang, The Life and Time of the Little Rascals. Quote, as a kid, I had most everything I wanted and we had a good life. When it was over, it was over. Matthew Stymie Beard uh, found that fulfillment as a former rascal meant more than a mere monetary gain. Uh, in a 1974 interview, Beard told The Tomorrow Show's Tom Snyder, I'd like to have the money, but I get joy out of seeing little kids come up to me and talk to me. 
I capitalize on it that way. I get a fulfillment in my heart. I get a fix every day because someone says, there goes Stymie. Oh, that's sweet. That's, I don't know. That's sweet. This one is about a child. We're going to move on from the dogs. There's Weezer. Now, earlier I played the clip of Jackie Cooper talking about one of the kids named Weezer and how his dad wouldn't let him play with the other kids between takes. Apparently his dad was trying to get uh, Uncle Bob and Hal to feature Weezer more, even if it meant less screen time to the other kids. So the idea was rejected. Blah, blah, blah. Now, he'd leave the series and would become an Army Air Cadet. Now, tragically, on May 17, 1945, Bobby Weezer Hutchins died when his B-52 Marauder collided with another aircraft during his final training exercise. He was 20 years old. Oh, Jesus. Darla Hood is probably the most remembered female of the group, especially for the films where Alfalfa tried to woo her. After leaving Our Gang, she held multiple jobs in the industry, including singing in a group that record background music for a bunch of Hollywood productions. She also remained very active in the Our Gang community. She was in the middle of putting together an Our Gang reunion when she got appendicitis. After routine appendectomy, she died suddenly of congestive heart failure. Uh, June 13, 1979, autopsy revealed that tainted blood transfusion uh, infected her with acute hepatitis, which then caused her death. Now, uh, like there was some successes. Like I said, we talked about Jackie Cooper. He was born into a family that had a bunch of different careers in Hollywood. His mother was a stage pianist. His father uh, left when he was two. Maternal uncle was a screenwriter, maternal aunt and actress who were married to director Norman Torog. But his first appearance in film wouldn't come from any of them. His grandmother would bring him along with her to auditions for film extras. She thought she hoped that uh, bringing a baby would help her book some gigs. Now, after acting in some shorts and a few feature films, he was recommended to audition for Our Gang. Signs three-year contract, 1929, moves up being one of the biggest stars of the, in the era of the series. While under contract, he was loaned to Paramount to star in the film Skippy, directed by his uncle Norman. Uh, At the age of nine, he became the youngest actor to ever be nominated for a Best Actor Oscar. He wouldn't win, but his uncle Norman Torog won for Best Director at the age of 32. Uh, It was a record held for over 80 years until Damien Chazelle won for La La Land. Paramount paid Hal Roach Studios $25,000 for the loan of Jackie Cooper. Hal still only paid Jackie the standard $50 salary a week. So he was making money on that loan. 1931, he was in such demand that his contract was sold to MGM. He'd star in a good amount of films for MGM with Wallace Beery, including Treasure Island. Uh, Jackie would write in his autobiography that Beery was jealous of him and would often try to upstage him, which, of course. He served in the Navy in World War II. He stayed in the reserve till 1982, retiring at rank of captain, started some TV shows, continued to get acting. Uh, he actually became a VP of program development for Columbia Picture Screen Gems TV division from 64 to 69. He was responsible for packaging series together to sell the networks, one of which was Bewitched. <gasps> so he helped get Bewitched on air, which I thought was interesting. He announced his retirement in 1989, would pass away of natural causes in 1911 at the age of 88. 2011. 2011, sorry, yes. Because of his Navy service, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. God bless you. Now, the other successful hour, the most successful, was he'd wind up not being the most successful. Now, that would be uh, Robert Blake, which I think he's going to get his own... He's gonna get his own episode. Just just wet our appetites so that so so that way we can do a whole episode on this cuckoo bananas. After our gang, he was part of the MGM days. He began uh, as Mickey Gubatosi in the series before changing characters like Mickey Blake. You know, he stayed a film series until the end. After quickly afterward, he landed the role of Little Beaver. 
who was a young Native American boy in the Red Rider series, appearing in 23 of the films until 1947. Now, uh, he appeared in a few uh, Laurel and Hardy films where he plays a Mexican boy who sells Humphrey Bogart a winning lottery ticket in The uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Now, he apparently was not... He didn't have the easiest life. Both of his parents were alcoholics. He was abused. He ran away at 14. He'd appear in a bunch of other things. Then he also became, one of his major roles was that of a U.S. draftee, but he left at 1921. He'd go into addiction of heroin and cocaine for two years. Then he'd get into the drug drug sales business, which was lucrative back then. But it took uh, acting class taught by Jeff Corey, who turned Robert Blake around and kind of got him going. And Jeff Corey became a teacher after being blacklisted. And it was this time that Robert Blake in 1956 started going professionally. As Robert Blake. Mm. He would get uh, cast in Truman Capote's novel In Cold Blood when they made it into a film. And he also was the first person, first actor to say the word bullshit in a mainstream American film. He would end up being uh, in a cop, like kind of a cop film called Electric Glide Blue. And uh, an ABC executive would see that and say, hey, let's offer him a TV show where he plays a cop called Beretta. That ABC executive that called Robert? Michael Eisner. That's right. So he would win two, he would be nominated for two Emmys, winning one. Then he just kind of kind of just left, left Beretta. He said, I put Beretta in the top 10. I tried to make a human being out of a cop, and I tried to do a cop show and make a social comment. Yes, yes, yes. Now, uh, in 1999, Robert would meet the woman who would become his second wife. Now, he had already previously married, had two children. Robert would be her 10th marriage. It would be her 10th marriage. So she had a ring for each of her fingers. Bonnie Lee Blakely was involved with someone when she met Robert, though, and I'm going to say a name for someone, and then I want you to guess who their famous father is, okay? Now, Bonnie was involved with a man by the name of Christian Brando. The father is Marlon Brando. Okay, sorry. Well, Bonnie got pregnant and wouldn't end up giving birth to a baby girl, Christian Shannon Brando. Now, she told everyone that it was obviously Christian Brando's child, but privately, she was like, yo, uh, Robert, this baby might be your baby. So uh, they went on Maury, and guess what? It was Robert Blake's baby. Now, three kids, a dream for a 66-year-old man, am I right? 66 years old. And once he was the daddy, it was no longer baby Christina. It was now baby Rose Lenore Sophia Blake. I like a nice simple name for a kid. He's like, oh, you 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 want Italian? You want an Italian name? He agreed to marry Bonnie but only if she signed a temporary custody agreement. Robert had stipulations, you see. Bonnie would have to have monitor visits with the baby. She'd have to get written permission from Robert if her friends and family had to go to Robert's property. The real kicker of the agreement was that if either spouse decided to end the marriage, the other spouse would get full custody of baby Rose. Now, Bonnie's lawyer told her not to sign it because it was, in his legal jargon, it was called lopsided. She agreed to the terms in October, uh, and a month later, November, 2000 they were married may 4th 2001 robert takes bonnie to dinner at vitello's in studio city after dinner they went back to robert's car which was parked on the side street in the cor- uh, corner from restaurant robert realized uh, realized he had to turn back and grab something that he left in the restaurant rob what did he leave in the restaurant he left his gun behind <laughs> <laughs> he said i forgot my gun i know dude i was reading this i don't think i realized that i was like imagine going up to like the uh the host I think I left something at the booth. Oh, uh, no, we checked. We clicked. No, it was my gun. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. Oh, uh, okay, sir. What kind of gun was it, though? <laughs> Can you describe it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
It's got cockatoo shit on it from Beretta. Yes, sir, this is yours. In the time that he was retrieving his gun from the restaurant, Bonnie was killed by a gunshot wound to the head. The gun Robert retrieved was not the one used in the killing. Now, Robert's arrested April 2002. He was found not guilty. Uh-huh. Yeah. And not guilty on two counts of solicitation of murder. The other count for solicitation to commit murder was dropped after it was revealed that the jury was deadlocked 11-1 in favor of an acquittal. L.A. District Attorney Stephen Cooley commenting on the ruling, calling Blake a miserable human being and the jury incredibly stupid. Well, he's always been discreet. On the night of the acquittal, several fans celebrated Blake's favorite haunt and the scene of the crime. Vitello's. Vitello's. Perfect. Only a few months later, there was a civil trial, kind of like the O.J. Yeah. Uh, that jury found Blake liable for wrongful death of his wife, ordered him to pay $30 million. Yes. Then in uh, 2006, he filed for bankruptcy. He's pretty much kept a low profile, except for a few interviews, and that's it, uh, until September 2019, when Robert launched his YouTube channel titled, Robert Blake, I Ain't Dead Yet, So Stay Tuned. Isn't he dead? Yeah, he, he, he well, he ended up dying, but like, he, he in 2000, he didn't die oh, until, oh, oh, oh. The, 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 he didn't die until March this year, 2023, so there's four years of YouTube, <laughs> but... Um, he, he discussed his life and career. I'm getting, I'm guessing as a way to make any kind of money in 2001. Yeah, he opened, probably. He opened Robert Blake's push cart. It was there. You could get all that classic Robert Blake merch that you wanted, scripts, memorabilia, and even an autographed copy of his book, Tales of a Rascal. Now he would die. He would pass away from a heart disease. March 9th, 2023, he was 89 years old. At Vitello's. At Vitello's. So after, after the break. I'm going to discuss this curse with you, and I want you to tell me if there, if you, what you think, if there's a curse. Okay, okay, take the break. I got to go to Vitello's. Would you wait in the car for a sec, Ray? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. I think that's a great idea. Keep naming new kids after breakfast. We'll know who the perfect oatmeal is as soon as they enter the room. Soon enough, with the success of these pictures, we'll run out of breakfast to name those tykes. And then we'll have to start naming after modern lunches. And it being the Great Depression, I think introducing a child named Stale Bread could really play in the Midwest. <laughs> Am I right, Mr. Roach? Ah, not before Cold Soup makes her first appearance. My God, you're a funny man. What's your name? Jerry McCormickson. Den. Well, that, that's, a, that's a hard first name to pronounce, but I'm going to try, Jerry. This studio's lucky to have you. Now, you know Louis B. is up my focus to make more shorts, but damn it, I'm flat out of ideas. Oh, don't you worry. I brought my handy-dandy notebook. Ah, lay it on me. I need more sketches so Louis B. gets off my tuchus. All right. Froggy gets a gun. Okay, so Froggy gets a hold of the Constitution, and he only reads through the Second Amendment, and he decides to buy a gun. But then as he's leaving the gun store, he loses his signature Coke bottle glasses. Well, without those, Froggy's blind as a bat. He can't see a thing. We'll I'll figure out the rest later. Once we get Froggy the gun on set, it'll write itself. Now that is something I would watch. Hey, how about this one? A buckwheat CPA. Now, uh, Buckwheat t turns out to be a math whiz, just a prodigy of arithmetic. He takes that know-how and opens up an accounting firm. Now the real zaniest comes 
when Buckwheat starts to question Alfalfa about his expenditures. I love it. This one's a little bit of an uh, Appalachian story. Now, this is called Moonshine by Moonlight. Now, uh, Spanky sets up a moonshine steal behind the kids' clubhouse. Now, his first batch becomes very popular. Now, the kids just love the stuff, can't get enough of it. Well, in the end, it turns out that Spanky was accidentally poisoning his pals because he was using 100% pure petroleum gasoline as the moonshine base. Only problem I have with this, and, and, and you can do what you want with this, uh, you're talking about drinking, and these kids are eight and nine, right? By, by, by this time, they've, they've, they've been drinking half their lives. But here's the thing, that's the thing, that's why I'm introducing moonshine, because they don't know how to, they don't, they, they drink alcohol that's already made by adults, made by big manufacturers. They're not making, they're not drinking their own stuff, they're not drinking their own hooch. That's a great job, Jerry. That's a great job. I love when it's educational. All right, this next one's a little historical. Little Miserables. This one will be an hour gang take on the Victor Hugo novel, Less Miserables. Starts off by having Alfalfa jailed for stealing a loaf of bread. He goes into the clink and we show that he's in there for a while by progressively having his beard grow longer and longer. More Frenchy stuff happens, then there's a revolution. We'll have the teachers play the baddies and the whole time Alfalfa's being hunted by Inspector Buckwheat. I like it. Now this one's called Rosh Hadarla. Now, Darla converts to be a Jewish and starts living by the book. Well, of course, Alfalfa has to convert, too. Now, I already have a scene written in my brain right here that, where Alfalfa has to figure out how to put a yarmulke on, one of those little, you know, little hats the Jewish men wear, and it won't go on his head. You want to know why? Because on account of his little cowlick. That's right, he can't get that hat on his head at all. It just keeps fussing and fussing and fussing and fussing. And I think at one point it'd be funny he puts it on and then it just boing, goes right back up. But of course he catches it doesn't hit the ground because I feel like that would be a very, very bad thing. I don't know if Mr. May is going to particularly enjoy this one for, for, for many reasons, but you continue on, please. I do have a, a list of just possible ideas. Uh, t the titles, really. The titles. I don't have the plot fleshed out, but the, you know, once you have the idea for the title, you know, the rest of it just tucks itself. I'm ready. Buckwheat's book burn. Good. Spanky loses the house. Fabulous. Alfalfa track betting. Kind of play on off-track betting. Love it. Porky summer vacation in Vienna. I would see that. Buckwheat gets his pilot's license. I would be very concerned to see that and film it. Darla wears trousers. Oh, I don't want to go into this gender stuff. It's very confusing. Franklin Delano Buckwheat. No, I will not do a film that supports that commie. Now, I, I'm, I'm sorry about the wheelchair, but that's as far as I can go. Alfalfa tries blacksmithing. Doesn't Al Jolson have a market? Oh, blacksmithing. Never mind. I'm sorry. Dollar breaks wind. No, 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 no. No, women don't do that. The Crucifixion of Christ Jehovah. Ah, that'll be beautiful. Pete the Pup Steel Refinery. Now that's interesting. Giraffe Dodging Darla. Fantastic. I think these are all marvelous ideas. Now, do you want to go over with me and see if we can watch Gene Harlow go naked in the dressing room? Absolutely. Let's just go get some whiskey for lunch first. Great. Let's bring the kids. Thank you. This was a sketch. So after all I've told you, probably about... 13,000 words on a page. Would you consider there to be a curse, Robbie? A curse? Yeah. No. Well, thankfully for us and our listeners, and well, the internet at large, the fine people at Snopes have done the work to test the theory, and they have all the things we need to see if the arguing curse is true. So this is from Snopes. Okay. Analyzing the information about the 28 arguing uh, child stars described above, we calculate the following. 55% of the actors were still alive or lived to be at least 72 years old. Mm -hmm. 76 of the actors reached the average life expectancy at birth for persons of their time. 
Yes. 83 of the actors reach what we would now consider, quote, middle age, i.e. late 40s or higher. This may not sound impressive by modern standards, but it's a significant figure given the average life expectancy at birth for most of the actors listed here was in the mid-50s range. Now, on the tragic side, we find three of the actors, 10% were victims of homicide, although two of the three were already well advanced in age by the time of their deaths. Two of the actors, 7%, of the of the, all the actors were killed in accidents, and one of them was a military pilot, a high-risk occupation. One of the actors, 3%, committed suicide. Two of the actors, 7%, died prematurely from medical ailments. Two of the actors, 7%, had significant problems with substance abuse and related crimes. Now, although these percentages may be higher than one would expect to find among the general population, they're not at all out of line with reasonable expectations given the extremely small sample size, 29, used here. One's man's curse is another man's normal cross-section of society. Yeah, I don't think there's a curse. I think what it did was, I think it showed that, I mean, I think this is the first example of um, children being exploited. Oh, yeah. Without without any sort of ground rules or boundaries. Yeah. And I think that led to a lot of damage and issues for them. But I, I, don't, I don't think there's a curse on it. It was just... The sample size of just seeing so many children, you know, like yeah, but but like the the survey was saying, you know, also this was the 1930s. Yeah, well, and most of them too, like you, like it, World War Two was such a big fucking factor in all this too, like in all their lives. So like getting oh, drafted yeah. and like when they say three were killed, I mean in war, right? Except for yeah. alfalfa. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's normal. I mean, and the guy, yeah. So I don't know. I I, I don't see there being a particular curse. With this, with this one. But like you said, it opened, like, it kind of put into the forefront children actors not make you know, like, getting screwed over and all this shit, like, where maybe it wasn't even a focal point, because these kids were such big stars that it wasn't just like, oh, did you hear about how badly the Busta Brown comedy kids did? Yeah. You know, like, oh, no, like, oh, man, it sucks. Alfalfa's not making any money, and I just watched him for 40 hours this week. Yeah. No, I, I, I think a lot, I mean, I, I think probably like a lot, of, like the Jackie Coogan laws probably helped influence this a little bit, um, which are the laws which are protecting, uh, you know, young performers and stuff. I mean, I, I, I think that, I don't think there's a curse, but I think it just exposed, hey, this is the, this is the downside of what can happen if this, if children in the arts goes unrestricted and unprotected. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like once, once this uh, this podcast has played its course, that uh, Schneider, Hebel, and Schroeder casting agency is going to be a real hit. We're going to be ahead of the game. Do you want to play a game with Mark now? Yeah. This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. Mark, who was your favorite of the R gang? Were you, did you have a favorite little rascal? Was yeah. there a rascal that you identified He's most with? He's a spanky with? guy. Oh, <laughs> spanky boy. Mm. Spanky boy. Uh, not really. I was more attached to the movie when they kind of tried to revitalize Whoa. it. Back so in the so Bug 90s. Hall. Big Bug Hall fan. No. He played Alfalfa. Is oh, he was funny. Kid? Bug Hall. That was a pretty good. I mean, if you can get a kid to impersonate anything from 50 years ago. But our gang, the little rascals, it's all fun and games. It's all cutesy. It's all fancy. Till the cute little kids grow up to be shitty adults. <laughs> yep. Amen. Then all of a sudden, the He-Man woman haters gang isn't so fun and cute anymore, <laughs> yeah. is it? No. We're going to find out a little bit more about this in a little game called Guess the He-Man Woman Hater. 
Mm. I'm going to read a clue about a particular woman hater from throughout history. Rob, Ray, okay. you're competing against each other head to head. Who can be the first person to correctly answer the trivia question? The one with the most points at the end of the round clearly. Wait, I almost said this wrong. The one with the least amount of points at the end of the round loses. Okay. You are clearly a misogynist piece of shit. Oh, no, I know why I did this wrong. Leave all this in, Daniel. Because the one with the most points at the end of the round knows more about misogynist pieces of shit, and they're the misogynist piece of shit. Oh, because they know about them. Because they know about them. The one with the least amount of points who loses, you're clearly an ally. Gotcha. Oh, that that was sense. the logic there. Leave all that in, Daniel. This is gold. <laughs> All right. Which world-famous superstar actor said the following during a 1965 Playboy interview? I don't think there's anything particularly wrong about hitting a woman, although I don't recommend doing it in the same way that you'd hit a man. An open-handed slap Wayne. is John justified Wayne, yeah. if John all Wayne, the alternatives yeah. fail. It was Sean Connery. Sean, oh, wait. Oh, yeah, that's no. right. I do. Connery. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. Sean Connery. Yeah. What famous philosopher once wrote, Everything in woman is a riddle, and everything in woman hath one solution. It is called pregnancy. Confucius. Donald Trump. <laughs> Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche. That was kind of a, a, a Nietzsche reference. During his July 2006 DUI arrest in Malibu, Mel Gibson referred to a female police sergeant by calling her this. Miss Piggy. Honey. Closing in closer. Baby. Sugar tits. Sugar tits. Sugar tits. In 1888, the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper killed at least five women in this East London district. Whore town. Tenderloin. That's Whitechapel. The Whitechapel district. Oh. Or you probably know it as Whitechapel. Oh, oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. The whore holes in Whitechapel. That's where Jack, Ripper, Jack the Ripper is from. Final question. Andrew Dice Clay yes. was known for his lewd and sexist nursery rhymes. Yes. He'd spout in his act. What is Andrew Dice Clay's real name? Andrew Silverstein. That is correct. And it was Andrew Silver something. Well, Rob, you got one right. Ray, you got zero right. Rob, you know more. You're a misogynist piece of shit. <laughs> okay, listen. Yeah, less yappy? No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> Stupid. You're a He-Man woman hater, dude. I was, um, I, you know where I uh, got my woman haters pinned from? First episode of The Three Stooges. You ever see that? It's called Women's Haters. You ever see that? I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure I have. Larry has a girlfriend in there, and he has to act like he doesn't have a girlfriend with Mo and Curly around. No? No. Well, that's the end of this episode. <laughs> 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 Wait, is that is that our gang? I'm, what's the our gang thing? I'm just doing the wrong instrument. Yeah. Wow, Ray, can you can you tell friends where they can find out more about us? This was a thing pod at Instagram. You can uh, website www.thiswasathing.com and also patreon.com/slash/thiswasathing. You know, five dollars old Lucy level get exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else unless it's already getting pirated and put on Reddit. But don't worry, there's gonna be takedowns coming soon. Yeah. I love when you're authoritative. <laughs> this is our IP. This is our gang. <laughs> thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg. Our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese. Our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford. 
our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic, DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 